Hello and welcome to the Golf Chick Podcast. My name is Kieran Clark, and back with popular demand, I am joined by my golf chic colleague Owen Davis, who has cut through his busy schedule to accommodate us today. Owen, you have of course been featured in pre-recorded segments in recent weeks, but now you're back for real to opine on just about anything that I can throw at you in the world of golf. Welcome back, Owen. So how are you today? Thank you, Kieran. Um, back by popular demand, I don't I was think being so. Kind. But, uh, I, I, yeah, I know. I, I didn't hear much of a clamour on Twitter or <laughs> Facebook, but, um, you know, I, I yeah, you obviously short, you know, got bored of your own voice, so you thought you'd better get oh, well, me Well, Owen, oh, that's impossible. I, I could never get bored of my own voice. Uh, basically, my view of this is kind of a monologue that you occasionally interrupt. That's my view of the, my approach to this podcast. But I, I missed you, so it's good to have you back. And uh, Owen, oh, of course, everybody's been kept busy in recent weeks by creating a mountain of content uh, based around the latest gear and equipment releases you've seen across all, all across all the channels stemming largely from the PGA show where you were at back in January. Uh, so Owen, give us a bit of insight behind the content you've produced recently on the website and on YouTube and what people should look, look out for when they check out Golf Shake. Yeah, I mean, it, it, times have changed um, over the last 10 years in terms of equipment manufacturers. I think there was a lot of launches um, you know, throughout the year. They, they tend to be earlier at the back end of the year um, nowadays, so we, we as the media get access to these clubs, the R&D departments, what's going on uh, at the back end of each year. And then kind of by January in the PGA show, which is the biggest show in golf in Orlando every, every third week in January, we kind of know what's going on and what's new and what's, what, you know, how the land lies for the rest of the year. So it does allow us as media to start looking at what are the best models, um, what's the new tech in the game. Uh, and be able to summarise that for for you guys back at home um, as you're starting to plan your season, your buying decisions, whether you're going to get a new driver, what you're going to get fitted for, irons, wedges, wedges, whatever it might be. So we've created quite a lot of content on the site over the past uh, two or three weeks since we've got back from Orlando looking um, at top fives. Um, So I've picked my five best uh, drivers and fairways or within each category um and you know that what i feel is performing the best very much a personal preference but obviously i've spoken to all the r&d guys um hit all these clubs um quite a few times played with them on the golf course so i've created these top five lists they're on youtube they're on the site so uh, go to the goal shake youtube channel or, or go to goal shake the gear section and you'll be able to find these top five lists uh and also some wider gear guides on what else is available on the market so Hopefully we've done a reasonable job at summarising it for you. Um, you know, we'd love to hear your opinions. You know, what you're thinking about uh, buying. Uh, if you've got any technical questions or you want any anything answered on custom fitting, I can do my best to to do that. If you comment on the articles or on the YouTube videos, I'll I'll certainly do my best to respond. So uh, yeah, that's what I've been up to the last three or four weeks, Kieran, and um, it's been good fun doing it. Yeah, there's an awful lot there to consume. And much of that is actually around uh, Callaway's new Rogue series of clubs, the drivers and so on. And uh, we actually have an interview later in the podcast that uh, Owen recorded with uh, Dr. Alan Hucknell uh, from Callaway. He's a senior vice president of research and development at Callaway Golf. And we'll talk a little bit with him about uh, why Rogue is different from Epic, which of course was a massive release from Callaway. But, uh, and we'll hear Owen's thoughts as well on that uh, new range of clubs later on in the podcast. But um 
going forward a little bit now, a little bit actually going back now to last week and kind of the world of golf, the latest tour news and um, uh, going back to the weekend's tour action. And of course, that was Pebble Beach Pro-Am uh, where we saw Ted Potter Jr. He fended off world number one Dustin Johnson to win the AT&T there in California. And I think it's fair to say that few would have expected this result at the start of play on Sunday. They were tied at the top and 14 under par. And of course, Dustin has an incredible record at uh, Pebble Beach. He's won there twice before and also has a really good consistent results in the championship throughout the years. However, the former US Open winner failed to really move have any notable spark during the final round and he had a, a really significant length advantage off the tee, but Potter was composed and assured and accomplished and he just, even stoic to an extent, that he strode towards a dream success there, winning his second PGA Tour event. While on the European Tour, Thailand's Kiradech Api Barnrat defeated the home favourite James Nitti's 2-1 in the final of the uniquely formatted ISPS Handa Super 6 Perth in Australia. It was 28-year-old's fourth European Tour victory and the first since he won the 2015 Paul Laurie match play. And it was a welcome reminder of the mercurial talent that has seen him become a regular fixture within the world's top 50 for several years now. A unique event there where you actually had uh, three rounds of stroke play. Then the field was actually reduced to 65 players after day two and ultimately 24 after day three. And then the remaining players went head-to-head in match play over six whole long matches. So quite a unique event, leading to kind of a faster-paced and more dramatic kind of element to the event. And uh, Appy Barnra actually beat uh, several players in that match play format, including uh, Ben Eccles, uh, Yusako Maezato, and American Sean Crocker to reach the last four, where he beat another Australian in Lucas Herbert in an extra shootout hole to separate those two and make the final. And of course, on Monday this week, it was the worst kept secret in golf for you know, quite a few years now, but the RNA officially announced that the Open Championship will be returning to the legendary old course at St Andrews for the 150th playing of golf's oldest oldest major in 2021. And coming to Fife for the 30th time, the Open's most famous venue will be a grand stage for the milestone year, having previously hosted the 50th, 100th and 150th anniversaries of the Championship that dates back to 1860. However, this will be the 150th playing the addition of the championship making what is always a special week even more significant in the old grey tune in three years' time. So Owen, kind of moving on to this week now, and obviously on the PGA Tour we have the Genesis Open from uh, Riviera Country Club, you know, a really you know, widely regarded as being one of the, the finest layouts on the circuit and as a venue with significant history and evokes a certain kind of classic charm. And of course, perhaps most significant this week is the uh, appearance of Tiger Woods, who... Uh, Finished a tie for 23rd at Torrey Pines. He's back where he's made his debut on tour uh, back in 1992 as a teenager. But he faces a strong field that includes the likes of Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, and of course, Dustin Johnson. So, Owen, looking at Tiger for this week, obviously Tiger finished tie for 23rd at the Torrey Pines, which was a, I thought, a very a superb result given the circumstances, given he, he really struggled off the tee, some of the worst driving accuracy, accuracy stats of his career, and to finish in a really good position on two you know, fairly stout, stout golf courses on the PGA Tour was certainly a positive, but um, I think going to this course, Owen, you have to improve off the tee if he wants to try and compete with the guys at the top. So how do you assess where Tiger's come? He's come back off into the game at the end of last year. He played at Torrey Pines, made the cut there, you know, shot under par. You know, some of his game looked very good. He's, certainly his scrambling was very good. It's kind of a... Kind of, um, yeah. A kind of ability under pressure and also sort of a really kind of the, the competitiveness was certainly there. So how do you assess where Tiger is right now and what do you expect to see from him going into this week and the weeks ahead as we build towards the Masters? 
Yeah, I think he's in a he's in a good place. I think he's in a better place than nearly anyone in the golfing world. Whether that's um, you know guys at home, media, uh, fellow players, you know manufacturers, he's in a better place than all of us expect him to be um, than six months ago. I think he um, that that tied twenty third for Tory Pines was just a huge result for him. He made the cut under the pressure, uh, you know. Uh, of knowing that he needed to do that. It would have been a bit of a failure for him if he hadn't made the cut, although no surprise probably to him or us if he hadn't done it. But he, mm. he desperately wanted to do it and he did it under pressure. Um, and, his, and his short game was was fantastic. So if you've got a good short game, if you're putting like he putted, um, he's going to click every now and then. And when he clicks on the rest of his game, if his short game's in that state, he'll win. Simple as that. Mm. Um so, you know, I can't quite believe I'm saying that because I thought he was done and dusted as much <laughs> as I didn't want him to be because, you know, I, I I love watching him play golf. Whatever you think of him off the course, um, I love watching him play and I think he adds so much to the game and so much to the tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, for a sport like golf that's struggling a little bit in the Western world, um, he is, a, you know, a, a great tonic for that um, and getting more people into the game and, and uh, growing our game. So... I think I think he's got a brilliant opportunity now to to build on you know where he's at at the moment and and hopefully um, do something very special over the next two or three years. He looks fit and healthy. Um, there was no issues whatsoever, no hint of any issues with his back at all. Um, so I I think now he's got a base he can build on, and um, it just becomes a process for him, and it's a process that he's been through loads of times before from the you know, very start beginning of the game, you know, through to entering the pro ranks all those years ago and, and returning several times after swing swing rebuild. So he knows he knows this landscape. He knows where he's at. He knows what he's doing. He knows the process he needs to go through. He's in familiar territory. Um, you know, and like I say, if his short game holds up and, and stays the way it was at Tory, he'll win. There's there's no doubt about it. And he'll probably win a major. Um, oh big statement you know, there. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? Yeah, yeah, why not? You've got a great short game. Um, you know, you can hit the ball all over the place. Plenty of players have proved that. Um, you know, and still win majors. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see. You know, why not? Well, I think uh, it's fair to say that. no one else has the experience he has at that level. And uh, I think in the end, even if you know Tiger isn't quite, hasn't been the player he has was previously. If you're in a, a final round of a major championship and you're playing with Tiger Woods and he's up there on the leaderboard, you you know he can win. He's done it more than anyone else has in, in the game around right now, by far. So he has that. Yes, yeah, so he has that. I mean, great right sports people. Sorry, King. Great sports people do great things, yeah. uh, unexpected things, first time things, break records. He is an all time great sports mm-hmm. person, and I know everyone says that word's overused all the time in these sort of podcasts, radio shows, pundits, whatever you say, yeah. you know, he is a great, great sports person, transcends goal. Absolutely. And it would not surprise you if he went and did something great, which would be winning a major. And what a story it would be. It'd be, it'd be awesome. It'd be fantastic. I'd, I'd love it. I'd love to see it happen. It would be. And I think, yeah, I think we all want to see it happen. You know, the kind of the dream would be seeing Tiger up against these young guys he inspired at a major. That'd be just incredible. Imagine him at Augusta up against Rory or you know Justin Thomas or any of these guys. It'd just yeah. be fantastic to see that. It'd be great theatre. And I actually think Tiger's career almost deserves yeah. that sort of finish to it. 
it would be very sad had finished the way it was looking like it was going to. And uh, if he can come back and be competitive and have a chance to have a, a Jack yeah. Nicholas moment again and come through and win uh, at the end of his career, that would be magical. And like you say, you know, I think he does look very good. And I think even just the way, even just health-wise, he looks very good. He actually, as someone kind of remarked, Tory Pines, where that was a year removed from his last appearance there, but he actually looked five years younger this year than he did last year. You know, he's playing without pain now, so he's healthier, he feels better, and he looks better. And, uh, yeah, I think it was a, a very significant result, that, that tie for 23rd, making the cut and kind of improving his game over the weekend and making good scores on a you know a tough golf course there. So that was significant, obviously, in the weeks ahead. It'll be interesting to see if he can try and build on that and keep that progression going. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's great to have him back. He does transcend golf. He brings more eyes to the game. And I think also bringing more eyes to the game also elevates the players of today. People will be more aware of, you know, Justin Thomas or John Ram or Rory McIlroy and so on. Watching those guys playing against Tiger, I think him being there can elevate these younger players as well in the eyes of the wider public. So it's uh, it's all good for that. And uh, again, Riviera is a, a classic venue, one of the the best known and one of the most you know most popular on the PGA Tour. You know, course of a lot of history. So it's uh, always a good week and a, again a fantastic field. And uh, and Tiger's just up there, and obviously Rory's there trying to bounce back from a miscut. Pebble Beach, hopefully that's just a minor blip for him. And of course, Dustin Johnson had a disappointing Sunday at Pebble, but is certainly you know still the world number one, and rightly so. And uh, still looks on his day to be the man to beat right now. And of course, Jordan Spieth, you know we can never rule him out. He's a uh, Mr. Cut at Phoenix, but he's sort of building towards a, I think a good week again. He was speaking very confidently after Pebble Beach, and um, you can never write him off. He also has that kind of. Uh, hidden ability to sort of get the most out of his game and he's also a guy to watch for that reason and can really can win anywhere and no matter the circumstances so it's uh it should be a great week but Owen moving now on to that Callaway interview uh, with Dr Alan Hucknell so I'll pass it over to you to introduce that and then we'll get that playing after you finish talking. Absolutely so this was recorded at the PGA merchandise show at the demo day um, if you don't know what the demo day looks like, Google it, have a look. Um, there'll be plenty of YouTube videos. It is mind-boggling event where you have a, a, a 360 range all the way around, um, 400 yards across with the world's biggest manufacturers and some of the smaller ones, um, all demonstrating their product to PGA pros ready for the season ahead. Uh, you have all the R&D guys there. Um, one of the top guys in R&D anywhere in the world is Alan Hucknall. Uh, he's a fascinating guy to talk to, fascinating guy to listen to. And I think there's quite often a misconception amongst um, consumers that the marketing departments have kind of just taken over these golf golf clubs and, um, you know, and it's just further every year, better every year. But behind the scenes, there are a team of guys who genuinely are very passionate about building you at home better golf clubs golf clubs that will make the game more enjoyable, that perform better, that are easier to hit, that go a bit further. Uh, and they put their heart and soul into it. And um, Alan is one of those guys. Um, he loves what he does. And, and I think that comes across. So uh, have a listen to this. And, um, you know, uh, it's particularly the question at the end, I think is quite an interesting one. Uh, and we can pick on the, up on that after the interview. Okay then, so here's Owen's interview with Dr. Alan Hucknell, the Senior Vice President of Research and Development at Callaway Golf. Hey Alan Hucknell, welcome to the Golf Shape podcast. Um, thanks for being on. Um, 
Can I ask you first about uh, Rogue and how uh, that has moved on from Epic? And, and I think after testing, I think the club is, is significantly better for me. It's significantly straighter as well. Could you explain to people at home what is different under the hood that, that yeah. has made the difference? Absolutely. So the primary technology in Epic was our jailbreak technology, and that enhanced ball speed. And that's what people saw when they got fitted on a launch monitor in particular. Uh, easy to see the ball speed gain, and that translated to distance. What we wanted to do was take jailbreak further because Epic was really the first time that Jailbreak had been out. We've had another year to work on it, so we've enhanced it further. Um, the vertical stiffening effect that it does is enhanced, and it works in greater synergy with a new face design as well. The two things together give us even more ball speed than Epic. The other thing that we wanted to do was really improve the forgiveness of the head. So it's a larger size head in Rogue versus Epic, and uh, for that the MOI numbers are larger, and for that you get uh, preserved ball speed. If you don't quite hit the center of their face, the ball speed's going to be higher than it would otherwise have been. Yeah. And if you d deliver the club slightly across the target line and introduce side spin, that's going to be minimized as well. So overall, longer and straighter. It's a great combination. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was uh, sub-zero in the Epic and actually moved up into just the standard Rogue. Right. And what that's given me is a lot of forgiveness. I mean, we use, you know, if, if, if people are going to get tested, do you think that will happen quite a bit? Or? I think uh, the forgiveness benefits are really noticeable. It'll be a slightly lower backspin number than you would have got with Epic yeah. as well, and that's good for distance overall for a lot of people and I think the options available in Rogue are interesting too if you're the kind of player that fights a slice if you're right hand or going to the right there's a new draw model in Rogue which has more draw capability than Epic did with the weights laid all the way around to the heel yeah. so that's an interesting option for a lot of people as well yeah and we saw jailbreak now into um, the three word and the hybrid yeah what difference does that make? I mean, obviously the smaller face, presumably the less of a difference, but I mean, how big a difference is it? Yeah, we were really uh, interested in ourselves. You know, we have face cup technology in our fairy woods and our hybrids, already a great ball speed producing technology. So we weren't sure if we added jailbreak to that, could we enhance uh, that that, uh, that ball speed further? We uh, And we have been able to. It, um, and it wasn't really a cut and paste solution from the driver into the fairy wood. Like you say, the fairy wood's very differently. It's, it's smaller, uh, the aspect ratio of height to width is different, yep. it's stainless steel, the impact locations on the face are generally lower because you hit off the ground. Yep. So there was a lot to think about. Yep. But as it turns out, uh, two vertical bars in stainless steel working with the face cut actually does enhance ball speed further. And uh, the Rogue lineup of irons, I mean, um, how do they differ from Epic? I mean, Epic was very much a, yeah. almost a personal project. It for you, was, is that correct? Yeah, and, it was. And it was, these uh, are more of a mass market product. Uh, are, product yeah, if you, you think of say. Epic as sort of a technology demonstrator, a bit of a concept car of an iron. Yeah. Um, what we've found with Rogue is we've been able to take some of those technologies that we experimented with at Epic and uh, bring them into a more mass market iron in Rogue. So we have uh, the latest in our face cup technology, but in Epic we had the metal injection molded weight that was a tungsten steel uh, blend. We brought that technology into Rogue to help us position the center of gravity for, for trajectory control and for forgiveness. So that's a, that's a big deal. And when you've got irons that are as flexible in the face as Rogue, um, you start to worry a bit more about sound and feel. So we've introduced a new material, it's a urethane infused with microscopic glass spheres yeah. in order to control the feel without taking away any of the ball speed advantages. Yeah. So Rogue has a lot of new technologies in the iron that we think are, are beneficial to a lot of golfers. And we've configured it 
three different ways, a standard model, a pro model, and a new X model. The X model really being focused on uh, those people who really want to hit it far. <laughs> it is long, it is long. And uh, one final question, where, you know, you're right at the forefront of, of club design, club manufacturing. Um, obviously it's getting harder and harder with limits to improve clubs, although I think you made a big leap with it. Yes, yes. Where do you see the industry in five years time, say? I'd say that we're, we're seeing that uh, we've got a lot of new technology ideas and you can see examples of it all around at Callaway right now. I think though that we're seeing a lot of the market going to more towards custom fitting and what I would call individualizing performance. So there might be a rogue driver that's fit slightly different to you than me and in the next five years I think more of the market will take advantage of that capability that we're providing. Right. Sounds fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the Golf Shape Podcast. And, You're welcome. Uh, looking forward to seeing what's out uh, this time next year as well. And that was Owen there talking to Dr. Alan Hucknell there from Callaway. Obviously a very interesting guy, a good discussion there. And Owen, you mentioned the last question. They're talking about where he thinks technology will be in five years' time, you know, customization and fitting improvements and shafts, et cetera, making golf clubs more personal to the individual players. So, Owen, what was your takeaway from that particular point? Well, I, th I think that, that was really interesting in that they obviously feel that they're getting to a point where there's – there's only so much they can do. They've obviously been at this point for a while. There's only, there's only so much they can get out of a golf club. So uh, what they call the CT rating, which is the, the, the fastest, fastest or as thin as the face can be in the centre of the centre of the club. They've been at that limit for quite a long time now. Mm. They've also been using carbon crowns, titanium for quite a long time. Um, and they've been improving off-centre ball hits, um, which is really where they've been making a big difference. You've obviously seen TaylorMade with their twist face. Uh, a lot of manufacturers have been working on how they can get um, some extra speed on off-centre hits. Callaway, in particular, with Jailbreak, have been doing that as well. Um, and you know, they're kind of they're kind of there. And I think any you know big advances now in in materials used are very very costly. Um, you know, we've seen Callaway actually using graphene in their ball, hugely expensive material. It's really interesting what they've done with that. And I know some shaft manufacturers are looking at how they use graphene in the tips of shafts. Uh, world's strongest material to help the consistency there um, but it's very costly so there's only so far they can go with it so how do they make golf clubs better for you over the next four five six seven ten years and they really need to dial the golf club into you as a person no one swings it the same everyone has different launch conditions you know I always feel this when I test this and people want numbers in the testing well actually you know my numbers don't necessarily matter mm. to you um, you know because everyone is different so um you know, bearing that in mind, you should always get fitted for your golf club. And that's never been truer because you will definitely get more performance mm -hmm. out of these golf clubs now if you get fitted. The manufacturers are creating more ability for their fitters to dial this club in, the clubs in for you. So you will definitely get more out of it if you go to a good fitter. And that will only be truer over the next four or five years. So it'd be really interesting to see how um, they come out with a larger and larger range of shafts, um, different um, central gravity positions, different weight options. Um, all to help you create the right launch conditions to get the most uh, out of your golf swing. So, yeah, that's the way it's going. It's an interesting direction. And, um, you know, th he'll already be working on stuff which will be released in five <laughs> years' time. I think generally when you speak to these guys, they're on a kind of eight to ten-year uh, product lifetime. So they'll already know roughly where they're going in ten years' time. So him saying that it's going to happen in five years' time, I think we probably need to take his word for it. Yes, indeed. I think he's already halfway there, probably, with the work. Exactly. He probably already knows the names of the clubs that are going to be <laughs> yes. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. I think that's probably something to look, to look and, out and for. Actually, sorry, Kieran, yeah. on that, Epic, this this name Epic, which um, was quite interesting, that was actually a code name 
uh-huh. uh, for the Callaway Club. Uh, so they they never intended to name that club Epic, mm-hmm. and that was the code name they've been working on for for years and years and years. So a little bit of insight there into into what they did with with, with that particular golf club. Ah, there you go. And I think they'll, yeah. I think they'll also uh, be intrigued, Cali, right now by some of this ch- this, this chat uh, emanating from the governing bodies. Now, I spoke to you about this earlier, Owen. Obviously, with um, mm-hmm. driving distance, a big issue in the game. People, the tour players are hitting the ball so far now. Are the questions about around that to do with golf courses, setups? Is the game becoming too one-dimensional at the highest level? Is are the, the great golf courses being kind of made obsolete by the distances that the players now hit it compared to what they did even just a few years ago? So, um, and actually, the RNA and the USG had obviously been governing this for many years and put down their the parameters in place for this. I've kind of kind of shied away from the issue uh, for several years now. Kind of. Well, said it wasn't really an issue and so on, despite lengthening their own golf courses. But there we are. It's kind of a, a contradiction of terms there. But in the past week or two, it seems that the tide is turning there for whatever reason. You know, Mike Davis, the CEO of the USG, said last week, we do not think that distance is necessarily good for the game. And just on Monday there, in St Andrews, Martin Slumbers, the RNA chief executive, when talking to uh, British press, he said that the, the, the RNA and the USG will actually produce a distance report uh, next week. And he wouldn't go into any detail, uh, but he just said the governing bodies will take action based on data in that report. And he did say that uh, there's been a jump in distance and that uh, they are the USG and RNA concerned about this. Uh, the stats would show that six to eight players on the PGA Tour this year are averaging over, over 300 yards off the tee. Uh, so that's obviously a, a major number there. And again, so coming back to these uh, obviously older golf courses that are now becoming obsolete and it's a concern for, you know, is the game as interesting as it could be? Uh, is the game becoming too one-dimensional? So Owen, what do you think about this? A lot of the tour players themselves don't want to talk about this issue. They sort of think, well, we can do what we like. It's our own game. It's a game we play. That's It's a progression and so on. But has the progression in technology in relation to professional golf gone too far? Quite simply, does the ball go too far? Um, it's a difficult one to answer because when you look at uh, how the professionals are playing, I, I would say, mm. yes, the ball is going too far. But is the game too easy? No, definitely not. Nope. I think a lot nope. of us would like the game to be easier and I think we'd attract a lot, a lot of golfers to the game if it was easier. And that, mm. that statement in itself terrifies me because I think one of the joys and beauties of our game is that we, me and you, can go and play the same golf course with the same equipment, mm-hmm. with the same balls, and it is the same. There's no, not all this stuff about tour players having different equipment is is basically rubbish. They they play the same gear as us. Um, they will be dialed in a little bit more on occasions, but generally, um, you know, these clubs are submitted to the RNA and USGA uh, once. You can see those submissions online if you really want to go and look at them. Um, and they're submitted to them, uh, and we play the same gear. And I think that's, that's one of the beauties of golf that we we can go and tee up. You know, the Open at Carnoustie uh, later this year. We can go and play it the week afterwards if we really wanted to. We could have the same equipment in the bag as the winner. We could potentially play it off the same tees. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's a beautiful thing. We can't go down mm-hmm. and play at Wembley or Centre Court at Wimbledon or yeah. whatever it might be. And I, so I think it'd be really sad if we ended up with the pros playing different equipment to the amateurs. And I worry that that's kind of the way the RNA and USGA might have, by making statements like they've made over the last week and by saying there's a problem, mm-hmm. I don't think they can really make the game harder for the amateur player. Um, I think that might be a backward step for golf. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the only way they're going to make it different for the pros without actually consulting golf course setup and architects is to start reducing their equipment down. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that would be a really sad way to go. But I, I think I worry that they're backing themselves into a corner right now, mm-hmm. that that's the only way they're going to go. And I think the pros potentially would support that because they don't care um, in, in a, you know, they don't care as long as it's a level playing field. They don't, they don't yeah. really care. Um, so, and I worry that there'll be a momentum behind the pros and the RNA and USGA, USGA to do that. But speaking as an amateur, I think that would be a very sad way to go. Yeah, uh, personally. Well, in the, um, yeah, I think in the end, you if, if a change was made at the highest level, the long hitters will still be the long hitters. It'll be obviously relative. It'll be a slightly reduced distance. But in the end, all the guys will still hit the yeah. ball at the same distance percentage wise. What, what they were doing anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think if you look on, uh, if you look at the history of the world number ones or the top five in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a few blips in there. Faldo, um, Nick Price, maybe. Uh, but generally, uh, a lot of the longest hitters in the world have been the best players in the mm. world as well. So, you know, you think you Greg Normans, Tiger Woods, Dustin Johnson's, Rory McIlroy's, uh, Adam Scott, you know, people like this. You know, if you can go back through history, Jack, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, yeah. they were the longest hitters mm-hmm. on tour uh, or certainly in the top five. So um, that's always happened. So actually dialing it in isn't necessarily going to change the top 100 in no. the world. At all, it won't it won't do anything for that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a strange one um, in that regard. But then there is the argument that the golf courses are becoming obsolete; they can't keep up with the with the changes. They're having to recreate, spend a lot of money putting new bunks in, new tees, buying new bits of land. Uh, there's all this sort of this sort of argument as well, so I don't think there's an easy answer. No, to I it. think that's true, and uh, you're right there about the amateur game in terms of the equipment now is so good, but the average handicap, as far as I'm aware, hasn't changed for decades. So golfers are really as good or as bad as they always have been; they just have better gear. But um, obviously, the tour guys are, you know, in terms of distance, are are progressing all the time. So, but what do you think the solution is? In the end, you said there obviously it would be sad if there was a kind of a difference between the pro game and the amateur game. And that seems probably the more likely solution, some sort of what they call bifurcation, where the tour players play with a certain kind of ball or whatever, and the amateur guys at home just play with what they have. They can go and buy what they want. So do you think that is actually the inevitable solution to this? And um, what what are your thoughts on what they could do to try and change the distance at the highest level, try and rein it in by, I don't know, 30 or 40 yards? Yeah, I do. I think they'll change the ball. Uh, I think the ball's the culprit, uh, actually. Mm -hmm. I think the manufacturers with the drivers... Have been at the maximum distance for a long time. A lot of guys, you know, obviously tour guys are playing a lot more cavities than they used to, but still quite a lot play blades, uh, mm-hmm. and the ball's going miles. Uh, there's no technology in blades; hasn't been for a long, long time. Um, yeah. You know, so the balls, the balls, the culprit. They should have limited the ball 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, and let the manufacturers go. And I think they've actually damaged the golf industry in terms of manufacturing uh, quite badly. Um, mm-hmm. Through that, I think there's been an awful lot of marketing dollars spent on, um, you know, fairly minimal gains a lot of the time uh, because manufacturers are, are forced to do that because they've got nowhere to go. If they'd limited the balls, in the end, you, you buy new golf balls because you lose them or you wear them out or you, you, you scuff them up, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't buy a new ball because of the technology necessarily. You might, you might change brands, but actually in terms of buying new golf balls, you, you buy them because you need them. Uh, you know, and and if they'd done that, I don't think it would have hurt the ball industry anywhere near as much as it would have hurt as it's hurt the the manufacturing club manufacturing industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, they should have reined the ball in years ago, let the manufacturers go, been able to produce drivers at a two, three, four, five, ten yards longer each year, and I think we would have ended up in the same place as we are now, 
in that regard and we'd be in a much healthier state. But having said that, that still doesn't save the problem if they'd done it the other way around. Um, but I think it's the ball that they will have to limit. I think the balls now are so good in the wind. They're so consistent. The spin rates are so good uh, and so consistent that they really, you know, there's not as much finesse in the game at the pro level. It, it really is bomb it hard, yeah. get your wedge out, pitch it on. Um, so I think what the RNA would like to do is see some more of that finesse back in the game, some some of being able to control your ball flights in the wind, hit different shaped shots, knock down shots, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's where they will have to go on, go with it. And I think they will have to end up with a ball that is used by the pros and a ball that is used by amateurs, which is, you know, um, completely different. And maybe then they can, they can um, you know, let the manufacturers go a little bit and make the game easier for, for, all, for all those guys out there who, who want to enjoy the game that little bit more. So, Maybe that's why it'll all go. Well, I was about to say, Owen, um, obviously if they, they reined in the, the, the pro golf ball, if you like, we could that in some way drive innovation from the manufacturers, try and you know, push it as far as they can, try and change things a little bit, and actually, it might actually reinvigorate the golf ball industry. Is that possible? I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's possible. I think, um, I think it would reinv- reinvigorate the manufacturers more than the golf ball guys, because right. I think we could then um, unleash limits on some of the clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I, it, the interesting. I mean, how do you transition then from the elite amateurs into the pros? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that's a question. Um, yeah. It's a big having. You know, for myself, I still play some elite amateur. Elite's a weird word, but that that kind of top <laughs> amateur. It's a bit well, definitely not elite. See. Yeah, but elite. that's what everyone calls it at the moment. But that, those <laughs> top amateur events, the British amateur. What what ball do you play with? Do you play with the pro ball? Mm. How did guys then transition? You know, we don't want to make it a closed shot where guys are struggling to transition into the game. Um, you know, so, you know, that's, that's my worry that we end up with two different games. Um, yeah. You know, or we dial it all back, I, I, you know, and, and the game gets a bit harder again. Uh, but like you say, handicaps haven't changed, so maybe it wouldn't get that much harder. <laughs> I don't, yeah, we've got a handicap system for a reason, so maybe, maybe <laughs> we'll play off two shots more than we are at the moment. Is that, is that the end of the world? Probably not. Well, actually, of course, in the end, we now have 54 handicaps, so that's uh, <laughs> getting go back quite far. Yeah, but, um, exactly. In the end, I think it's ultimately the case that, irrespective of technology and so on, the way to improve your game is ultimately have a better technique, improve your improve your golf swing. That's going to way to improve your game. Exactly. Have some more lessons. Never mind um, buying a new set of golf clubs. But yeah, uh, yeah I think it's a, a, a is, is a deep issue. But you mentioned there on the kind of lack of or the kind of absence of finesse at the highest level. As a as a good golfer yourself, as someone who's enjoyed the game throughout the years and wants to watch the best players display their skills, would you welcome seeing more of a finesse, shot making kind of game at the highest level again? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, seeing them bomb it miles and miles and miles is is um, is not great. And I think the spin on the ball, um, mm-hmm. the reduction of side spin on the ball has a, has a has a big part to play in that. I think if you use the modern balls in the wind now. Uh, you know, obviously, I play occasionally with professionals, but also a lot in the top amateur game. And and the young guys will stand there and not worry about which direction the wind is going, unless it's really, really blowing an absolute gale. They'll just stand mm-hmm. up there and hit their normal shot, and the ball won't react in the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, that's taken some of the skillfulness um, out of the game in terms of the shot making. So I think the R and A could re- could bring that back into the game, and that might make for a better playing field amongst the pros. And it's not just about the kind of bombing the ball mm-hmm. as far as you can. And then it being a chip and putt contest. So, um, 
that that's one way they could go, and I think that's one way they probably will go. Um, is down that is down that route. I don't think they'll reduce the manufacturers um, in terms of the drivers down. I think I think it will be the ball mm. that will be the focus of attention. Yeah, I think you're probably right there, and it'll be interesting to see what they should come out with the, with the report uh, next month. But then, of course, in the longer term, what our solutions are to this. And uh, but clearly, the, the, the are spoke both the RNA and the USG are sort of speaking off the, the same hymn sheet right now. They are obviously united on this one, and they seem to be coming together to some kind of cohesion in terms of a, a longer term strategy. But um, Martin Slumbers did say didn't give any specifics. But he did sort of say they were intent on reducing distance. And he mentioned there are a lot of options available and uh, engaging with uh, the manufacturers and so on about how they can do this. Um, he talked about the drivers as well as the golf balls. I'm not sure what they're going to do there. So we'll see what comes out of this. It's an ongoing issue, ongoing topic. It's been a discussion for a long time now. And uh, I think in the end, probably within golf, it always has been a discussion. You go back to 100 years ago, they probably thought, wow, these blatter golf balls, what's going on there? We should play with feather golf balls and so on. And then obviously wooden clubs to, to steal shafted clubs. So it's... Uh, it, I think... Yeah. Um, sorry, Ken. Interesting you mentioned drivers. I think they might reduce the driver head size, right. actually. Would be one way they could start bringing this down. I'm not, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't know a lot about physics, but I would imagine the this trampoline effect off the faces that is partly being created by the size of the face of the drivers. Uh, so I could I could see them bringing that driver size mm-hmm. back down from 460 quite significantly. But it is the ball that's made yeah, a big difference. Yeah. So they have to. Address yeah, that I think would be the easiest solution certainly, and probably the least controversial one as such. It would be the least damaging to the overall industry as well. So um, I think there's a lot of resistance to from the industry if, if it's tried to change, obviously, the drivers and so on. That would be wouldn't go down too well. And I think that's obviously an issue that they have to try and tread as well. And the governing bodies don't try and uh, open yourself up to some sort of litigation from uh, anybody else when you try and change this. So, uh, yeah, again, a topic that will go on and we'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. And, uh, of course, we'll have that covered in Golf Shake. And we'll probably have further discussions down the line on the Golf Shake podcast. But, Owen... We've run out of time, I have to say. It's, I can't believe it. Oh. You came on, you, t- you, you took up half by. the show. That's not allowed. Honestly. Oh, you... I know. It's a, it's a well-interrupted it was, monologue. Well, basically, this week. it was your monologue. So there we are. It's, it's, I feel quite <laughs> uh, robbed of my time, but there we are. So, But it was a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Obviously, we, we interviewed there with Alan Hucknell as well. Obviously, interesting stuff. So a lot to enjoy this week, and uh, we'll have more coming in the coming weeks as well on the podcast. And of course, as one mentioned earlier, there's an awful lot of stuff on the website, on the YouTube channel. Go there, subscribe, check out all the latest gear uh, videos and top fives and so on. Likewise, on the website, we have all the gear guides are now in place and obviously a lot of stuff there to look at. And of course, golf courses too. That's one thing we're going to try and look at more this year as well, try and push that little bit there and get you guys playing some new golf courses and get them reviewing them for yourself and, uh, and getting some more um, ratings on the the, go- the Golf Shake uh, course section, which is uh, becoming increasingly popular as well. So, Owen, thank you for joining me on the Golf Shake podcast this week, as always. Pleasure. And have you back hopefully soon again. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's Golf Shake podcast. And, of course, at Golf Shake, we want you to get out there and play more and play better. Go and track your scores on the Golf Shake score tracker and get back playing again as we edge towards March. Can you believe it? Spring is almost here. Until next time, thank you for listening.